Our, our scripture today is from 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Hear now God's Word. Servants must be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have quoted this several times, and it came up again last Tuesday at Zach Parker's ordination exam in West Monroe. And it came from it comes from William Still's book titled The Work of the Pastor, and where he, he says this, All that many spiritually sick people need is a good balanced diet and a disciplined routine. My principal surgery, speaking as a pastor, my, my principal surgery, clinic, vestry hour, counseling room, call it what you will, is the pulpit. So I am reminding you that while it is absolutely essential that we learn accurately what the Bible teaches and that we must understand its content, its context, and its meaning, that in the end the sermon is about receiving the word with all readiness of heart or eagerness of heart so that each of us might be changed. We might be transformed by this living Word of God. This is not just a lecture. This is the living Word of God. The Holy Spirit is applying His Word to us. And we should be moved to do something. We should be moved to change something. Sometimes several things. And if we are not moved to grow then we are simply wasting our time. The sermon is group counseling. This is a group counseling session where we receive direction for our li- for living our lives as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And if I were sitting in a room with just you, or just you and your spouse, or you and your family, it would be the same kind of thing. We are sitting here with our family. For this counseling. And so Peter was writing to a particular group of Christians who were contemporary to him, but as he is writing and as the Holy Spirit is moving him to write, the Holy Spirit had you in mind. Very particularly. God is omniscient. And so as the words of Scripture are being written to a particular group of people, they are being written for a much broader group of people that includes us. 
And so the true depth of scriptural knowledge is mostly reflected in how we live. So let's begin today's counseling session. The youngest child knows life is not fair. Therefore, you're not only going to feel wronged, you are going to be wronged from time to time. The world is going to wrong you. Those in authority over you are going to wrong you. Your friends are going to wrong you. And of course, you are going to wrong others. The only question is, how will you respond when you are wronged? Will you give a natural, fleshly, prideful response? Or will you offer a supernatural, spiritual response? Do you know what a supernatural, spiritual response looks like? The scriptures give us directions that go against our natural grain. They, frankly, rub us the wrong way sometimes. Yes, it's at these very points, though, where our faith is tested. Will we, when it's hard, will we trust and obey God, or will we take matters into our own hands? Will we throw a fit? Will we let somebody have it? Will we just spew and vent and pour out our gut? When injustices present themselves to us, what are the principles that should, should guide our attitudes, our actions, and our words? We should always remember, just like ideas all have consequences, you pay a price for everything you do. You know the old, some of you remember the old Fram air, uh, oil filter commercials. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. You can buy the oil filter now for six ninety-five. I think that's what they were then. Or you can buy a new engine later. So uh, the same kind of principle applies here. You can have immediate gratification or perhaps at, with a larger price later. Or you can have discipline now. That will pay off big dividends later. Hebrews 12:11 says, "Now no discipline uh, seems joyful in the present, but rather painful. But in the end, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it." How you respond to life situations will either be feeling-oriented, which provides Perhaps some immediate gratification. I got to blow off some steam. I got to vent. I got to vent my spleen. I got it off my chest. I gave you a piece of my mind. So there's that thought that somehow that brings some kind of relief. Or we can operate as followers of Christ with a command-oriented, a duty-oriented response, which provides long-term lasting benefits. 
So verse 9 is the, provides us some context of this passage we've read where Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are his special people. And your reason for existence is, quoting Peter again, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he saved you. That's why you are his special people, is you are here to proclaim his praises because of what he's done for you. Took you out of darkness and put you in the light. Verse 11, Therefore, you are pilgrims and sojourners, aliens, if you will, in this world, and your goal is to live such a life that people would see you and glorify God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's not just uh, what we think of as positive good works, but think here now as we're talking about facing suffering and injustice, people are watching to see how we respond to that as well that supernatural response, so that they see God in you. Because they wouldn't have reacted that way. What's going on with you? Why are you different? Why aren't you given a string of foul words in response to that? So verse 9 and 11 give the same goal for Christians. Live in a way... It points to God. Does that sound familiar? Man's chief end is to glorify God. Remember, glory is to point to, to cause people to look at, to magnify God so that he's seen. But a Christianity that makes no visible difference simply cannot show God. Therefore, it is not true Christianity. When Peter, then Peter starts to give some examples of what true Christianity looks like in the hostile world of his day. And So what if you're a servant with an unbelieving master or even a crooked or an abusive master? And we could think of many parallel situations. So what does true Christianity look like in those difficult situations? And so again, Peter singles out three of the most difficult circumstances, those under tyrannical governments, house slaves who are under cruel masters, harsh masters, and he goes on and will even talk about wives who are married to unconverted husbands. And he tells us what an appropriate Christian response looks like. Verse 18, Christian servants are submissive with all respect to their masters. Now remember, There's an assumption here that this is a harsh master. But this is the Christian response. Verse 19, Christian servants bear up under sorrows when they suffer unjustly. When it's not fair. Verse 20, Christian servants do good when they suffer for it. They bear, when they do good and they suffer for doing good, they bear the suffering patiently. Can we do that? That, That's supernatural, isn't it? Verse 23, Christian servants 
don't return evil for evil when reviled. They don't revile back. They don't threaten. In other words, Christians are not defiant, rebellious, and insolent. They have a spirit of meekness and submission and compliance even when their masters are unreasonable and abusive. Rather, he gives specific directives as to whom, how, and why this command must be followed. Of course, there should be, there are, and there should be legal protections from abuse. That's why we want a Christian society. We want just laws. We don't want injustice. We don't want abuse. We want there to be a restraint upon evil. So that's not what we're saying is, but we don't always have that option. Anyone, any abused person should appeal to higher authorities for protection. Abuses don't always rise to that level. And the legal remedies are not always available. What does this submission have to do with showing and glorifying God? How does this declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light? Well, the first part of the answer is that this attitude is utterly contrary to fallen human nature. In fact, I would guess that in this room right now, there are strong feelings of resistance against this call for meekness and submission to unreasonable masters, parents, bosses, others. Why? Because by nature, we hate to give forth the image of any kind of or impression of weakness. We hate to look like someone took advantage of us. We hate to let false accusations against us stand. We hate it when unreasonable and abusive people seem to have had, seem to have had the last say, and we recall, uh, excuse me, we recoil and we desire to get even. Retaliation. Payback. So what Peter calls for here is utterly contrary to our fallen human nature, and therefore, when the Bible does that, I often think to myself, that won't work. I don't see how that's going to work. So what does this attitude have to do with showing God? If we triumph over our own fallen nature, that is pretty strong evidence that something more than our fallen nature is at work in us. You are responsible to do what God says regardless of what others may or may not do. Your responsibility is to handle wrongs Rightly. Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. There's never been a bigger injustice than that. Stephen prayed for those as they stoned him. What would you have done? All through life, people are going to continue to wrong you. Get used to it. They might deliberately have it in for you, some kind of a cutthroat situation. They might slander you. They might not appreciate you. 
But if you don't learn how to live with and respond rightly to those who are doing wrong, you are going to be in continual misery for the rest of your life. Because you're going to have to be getting even and keeping score and making sure everything is perfectly balanced in your life. And God says it's not. And you know what? I'm going to suggest to you if you're doing that, if that's the pattern of your life, God is going to keep sending more wrong to you if you're a child of God. Because one thing about God, he gives us a lesson, and if we don't learn the lesson, we get to repeat the class. He loves us too much to let us keep on going in that direction. Stop keeping score. God keeps score. You don't have to get even. You couldn't, if you, if you had the power to do it, you couldn't do it. If you had some, some ability to control what other people did and didn't do, you, you don't have the ability to truly keep score. Bitterness will eat you alive. Corey Ten Boom, think about her life, those who know it. She and her sister in a Nazi prison camp in the most miserable of conditions. Here's what she said. Even... As the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled within me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man, the one who was torturing her and giving her grief, the guard. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, he gives along with the command, the love itself. So, remember, we want to demonstrate the grace, the mercy, the favor, the kindness of God. And this shows our connection with God. Peter tells us five times that this amazing kind of life, so contrary to human nature, is owing to our connection to Him, to God. God is being shown because God is the key to this utter counter-natural way of life. In other words, for the people, for these people, Christianity did make a difference. It made a radical difference. The root of their fallen nature is severed by the acts of God, as in acts, not the, it's also by the acts of God. They are now living from a radically different premise. You see, whatever's going on, what, in, in whatever moment, this is not disconnected from God's plan. It's not disconnected from the past or the future. This is a story being, that's being, that is unfolding. They are now, these believers are now living from a radically different premise, different values, different priorities, and a totally different perspective and focus. 
And so Peter connects this radical change of attitude to God in these ways. Verse 19, conscience toward God. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. The word commendable here speaks of that which affords joy and pleasure and delight and sweetness and charm and loveliness and grace of speech. The word grief means heaviness, sorrow, pain, annoyance, afflictions, faults, and we don't endure grief and unjust suffering out of the fear of man or even out of our own weakness. Those are irrelevant. We bear it for the sake of conscience toward God. That is, simply put it maybe in another way that's easier to grasp, we face that situation by taking God into account. He's part of the story. He's at work in the story. He's at work even in the injustice, and he's so powerful that he can overcome injustice and turn it into good. Isn't that the story of Joseph? You intended it for evil, brothers. God intended it for good. Joseph didn't know that when all those things were happening to him. God did, and Joseph knew God, and he trusted God. That's the story over and over and over and over in the Bible. God is, in the, God is the unseen factor in the world, and so we're to look to God and not to our circumstances. They will never understand our behavior when we live unto God. Why don't you fight back? Because my conscience is bound to God. And we'll see more clearly in a minute what difference that makes. Number two, this connection to God is the favor of God. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. The word faults here simply refers to trespasses and sins. What what Peter means here is that God delights in behavior that reflects our utter reliance upon His grace when the supports of the world have been knocked out. This is when a Christian, out of conscience toward God, looks to God for strength, for courage, for hope, for peace in a time of suffering. And as a result, he bears the suffering patiently. And God sees it as a tribute to His grace. God's grace is manifest in that. And when God is glorified, He's pleased. And number three, we, are, we need to recognize when we suffer unjustly that, God, uh, that we are called by God to suffer. Verse 21, For to this you we're called. Here the point is that this kind of non-retaliating, gracious, submissive behavior is owing to a call from God. Suffering unjustly in this world is not a coincidence for Christians. It is a calling. To this you were called. He says again in chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called 
to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Remember, there's a payday. Suffering with patience shows God because it is an answer to his calling and it is an obedience to our vocation. Number four, Christ is our example. Verse 21, last part. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. The word example gives us an image of someone writing copy, including perhaps the letters of the alphabet, and and then those are given to a beginner to aid them in learning to draw their letters. That's what Jesus did for us. How did he respond when he was reviled? And people can see this uh, is the way Jesus was. Uh, John 14, 9. And if you have seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So this is the kind of attitude that shows God by showing Christ his Son. We're acting like him. And number five, entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. This is perhaps the key, the hardest part. This is so unjust. This is so unfair. It's not the end of the story. Verse 23, while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Here's one of the most important keys to how patient endurance of unjust suffering shows God. When you endure unjust suffering for the sake of conscience toward God, you're not saying justice doesn't matter. You're saying that God is the final judge and he will settle the accounts justly. Maybe he'll do that today. Maybe in 10 minutes. Maybe in 10 days, 10 years. I don't know God's timing, but I do know what he says he'll do. And that's as certain as you can get. You're saying, again, God's the final judge. My abuser will not have the last word. God will have the last word, and that's why I don't need to. I defer to God. As Peter says, I entrust myself and not just myself, but my cause and my accusers and the whole situation and the justice that needs to be done, I'm going to hand that over to God. So my compliance is not an indifference to justice. It's a way of saying that the safest place for retaliatory justice is in God's hands, not mine. We see this many in many of the Psalms. For example, Psalm 26, verses 1 and 2. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. So we cry out for God to vindicate us. The powerful cry of my heart is that I get my rights is handed over to God. If I am to be vindicated, it will be God who vindicates me when he has tried and purged me duly 
through the suffering. So, some application. God's, uh, does God will the unjust suffering of his people? This text does assume that God sometimes wills for his people to suffer unjustly. In verse 21, we are told that you're called to this. Peter says the same thing more explicitly in several other places. In chapter 4 of this same book, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Think about the book of Job kind of illustrates this. All kind of bad things happening to Job. Job wants answers. He wants God to explain himself. And, of course, then God says, have a seat. I'm going to ask you a few questions. And he proceeds to ask Job questions that Job can't answer. And, in effect, while God never directly answers Job and gives him the specifics of what he's doing and how he's doing, imagine a parent trying to explain this to a three-year-old, what's going on. But in the end, Job puts his hand over his mouth. In effect, what God says is, you know what, if I can create and take care of the universe, I can take care of you. Trust me. And what does Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Again, in chapter 3, verse 17 of 1 Peter, For it is better, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So God wills this because he knows it is the best way to bring glory to himself in these circumstances, sometimes by miraculously escaping suffering and more often by graciously bearing suffering that we don't deserve from men. And we do this because we trust God and therefore... He often wills that we suffer unjustly and that we bear it by His grace and for His glory. In fact, there's an argument been made historically about how the kingdom has advanced through the blood of the martyrs. Is there justice for wrongdoing? So where then is the justice for wrongdoing in abusive masters? First, justice is uh, in God at the last day. God is going to settle all accounts justly. No one will get away with anything. Those who hold Christ and his people in derision and do not repent will one day cry out, the Bible says in Revelation 6.16, for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them rather than the wrath of the Lamb. Second, God has given a measure of his authority for retaliation in this age to the state and his minister, uh, as his minister for keeping order and peace in society. That's another level of justice. 1 Peter 2.14 says that God ordains kings and governors to punish evildoers and to praise those who do right. So when we have just governments doing their job, there is another place God has given us some protection. So God wills that governments punish those who cause Christians or anyone else to suffer unjustly. And so we may legitimately labor for such a government. We should elect those kind of people. 
But the God-given rights of the state to punish does not nullify the God-given calling of the individual Christian to endure unjust suffering patiently. God's glory shines partly through his dispensing of justice through the state, but it shines even more through the patient, God-centered suffering of his people. And then finally, what is it about God that is shown through our patient, non-retaliating endurance of unjust suffering? 1 Peter 2.9 says that our lives are to, quote, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 says that our lives are to, excuse me, I just quoted it. So what are the praise uh, excellencies of God that shine through this kind of meekness and endurance and patience. Here's a small sample. When we suffer unjustly and patiently with our trust in God, we are surrendering some very valuable things sometimes, our health, our comfort, our ease. And so we are showing the excellency of God's superior value. 1 Peter 2.7, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. We're saying, God is worth more than me. God is worth more than me getting my rights. His name is worth more than my name. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we surrender much of our claim to be protected and cared for on earth, and so we show the excellency of God's superior shepherding care for us. 1 Peter 2.25, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him, including the injustices, because he cares for us. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we go without the glory of fighting back and winning. And so we show the excellency of God's superior glory, that he will share with us someday and the justice of his throne that will one day settle all the accounts. A few verses, 1 Peter 2.23, Who, again, when he was reviled, talking about Jesus, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we seem to take a tremendous risk with our life. The only life most people believe we have to enjoy. But this is it. There is no other life. You only go around in life once. Grab all the gusto you can, right? This is it. You better fight for your rights. You got the streets filled with people fighting for rights. If this is the only life most people believe we have to enjoy, 
but we believe differently, and so we show the excellency of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. We see what they can't see. We seem to throw away our one chance for happiness by not fighting for more comforts here. But in so doing, we show the excellency of God's power to raise us up from the dead as a faithful creator and one who has all dominion, all the dominion in the universe. 1 Peter 5.11, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And finally, when we endure just suffering meekly by trusting in God, we acknowledge that we're still sinners and we aren't earning anything by this patience. Again, Corey Ten Boom said, It is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. So when your time comes, and it may come today, you may still be living out some that came this week, or last year, or ten years ago, or it may come in a week or a month or a year, but when your time comes, keep these great words in mind from 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, you got that? It's that personal. You. When you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we live in times where men ignore and trample your word. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And yet we know that your judgment on these sins is also present. Misery and death are all around us, for you will not be mocked. What men sow, they shall also reap. Yet in your mercy you have provided a remedy for our sins and for theirs. There is hope for the hopeless, since Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you for the gospel of Christ. Help us to live in a manner worthy of its calling. Help us to adorn the gospel of our Lord. Help us to submit, not only to authority, but even when we suffer wrongfully. May we be found commendable before you. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Jesus not only has a way... Uh, Jesus not only has a way of setting before us what seems to be impossible demands, but he also demonstrated for us exactly how we are to respond in the most dire circumstances. Matthew 5, 38-42, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Luke 6, 27-38, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from, whom, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Again, there's no getting even here. This is proactive. You do the right thing. I don't care how much they're doing the, right, the wrong thing. You still have to do the right thing. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies... Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over till over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And one more, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but the contrary, on contrary, a blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Amen. Amen. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation. You, O Lord, are our stronghold. We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation and your name, and in your name we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Bless now our resting and our feasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Amen.